When Muammar Gaddafi's 42-year rule ended with his brutal death in 2011, many thought his family's hold over Libya had died with him. Malik Trena covers Libya for Al Jazeera. He also lives there. The last time he laid eyes on Gaddafi, he was looking at a corpse. They put him in a refrigerator, like a walk-in refrigerator. And people were coming in from all across the country. You know, some people drove a thousand kilometers to come and see Gaddafi's body for themselves. A lot of people couldn't believe it. 42 years of this person ruling them with an iron fist. And I remember coming into this refrigerator and Gaddafi just looked so small, you know? <laughs> I was just, wow, this, this little man caused all this havoc for decades and, and now it's over. But is it? 10 years later, the instability unleashed by Gaddafi's death has yet to end. Presidential elections are scheduled to take place in December, and one of Gaddafi's sons could be a contender. So what are the chances we could see another Gaddafi rise to power in Libya? I'm Patricia Sabga, filling in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The Gaddafi who could be president is Saif al-Islam, the second of Muammar's seven sons. He was captured by rebels in 2011, and he hadn't been heard from for years. And then this summer, he gave an interview to an American journalist, saying he was ready to return to politics and to save Libya from its post-Gaddafi fiasco. Before the uprising that toppled his father, Saif al-Islam was being groomed to follow in his footsteps. While some of his brothers were better known for playing professional football or driving expensive cars, Saif was educated at the London School of Economics, and he played a big role in Libya's external interests. Talks to end Libya's secret nuclear program, lucrative gas and oil deals, and prisoner releases. Saif al-Islam played a central role in all of them. Saif al-Islam really was spearheading a movement trying to bring in investment to the country, he was also trying to bring in uh, former opposition leaders into the fold and to make everything much better. You know, it's a new Libya, we're forgetting the past, and we're trying to invest in the country. There's been a lot of mythology that's been built around him as well. And one of the stories associated with Saif al-Islam is how he lost a finger and thumb on his right hand. He says they were lost in the war, but there's another story in Libya that gives him insight into how he was regarded during the uprising in 2011. Can you share that with us? In the very beginning of the revolution, Saif Islam came out on video in an interview on the national TV channel uh, where he was waving his finger, you know, threatening Libyans about civil war and about rivers of blood. Libya is not Libya is not Egypt or Tunisia. Brothers, we are tribes and clans. We all have access to weapons. Instead of crying over 84 people killed, we will be crying over thousands. Blood will flow, rivers of blood, in all the cities of Libya. Then, after months of fighting, Saif was captured in November 2011. Saif al-Islam was ambushed and captured while heading to the border with Niger. 
captured after three months on the run. Asleep on the desert sand, accompanied by only a handful of loyal Libyans, he gave up without a fight. He was carrying weapons, but only a few thousand dollars in cash. So when he was captured in southern Libya, he was brought back with his fingers cut off. So the rumor or the what Libyans were thinking of in 2011 was that those fingers were cut off in retaliation for his speech when he was threatening Libyans in that famous speech in 2011. But even before he was captured, Saif effectively lost power in October 2011. That was the day his father was dragged from a ditch by rebel fighters and killed. Malik was one of Al Jazeera's producers covering the uprising. On October 20th, he and his team were on their way to cover fighting near the city of Sirte. They got a call from the capital, Tripoli, warning them of a massive convoy heading their way. The convoy, they were told, had something to do with Gaddafi. So Malik and his team drove toward it. Following a push through Libya by opposition groups backed by NATO firepower, Gaddafi lost his grip on Tripoli. Gaddafi's hometown of Sirte was his final stronghold. And then this just huge army of vehicles appear in the horizon. They're coming towards the west, and we're heading east, and, and we could just see just hundreds of gun trucks, ambulances, police cars heading towards us. As they come in, we can see that people are chanting, Allah Akbar, God is great. We got Muammar Gaddafi. Well, after more than eight months of bitter fighting, Libyan deposed leader Muammar Gaddafi has been killed in Sirte. They said that he has died as a result of the wounds he sustained in the ambush. When Malik and his team headed into Sirte, they met a man from the rebel brigade that had captured Gaddafi, named Omran Shaban. He was holding Muammar Gaddafi's golden pistol. It's a very famous pistol here in Libya. Uh, so he told us the story of, you know, how they captured Gaddafi, how he went into this trench, this water trench. They shot into the water trench. Gaddafi came out saying, what did I do to you? You know, my children, what, what, what's wrong? What did I do to you? The magnitude of the moment didn't fully hit Malik until he was standing in front of the convoy that had captured Gaddafi. Several cars were just completely burned out. Uh, and I remember, you know, the smell of the bodies that was there was just just overwhelming. Um, and I just remember thinking, wow, this is this is history. Gaddafi's done, you know, it's no more fighting, no more killing. Libyans can move towards building a, a free and democratic country. But Libya, which harbors Africa's largest proven oil reserves, didn't go in that direction. Instead, it descended into chaos. Militias that had fought together to overthrow Gaddafi turned against each other to fill the power vacuum created by his death. The revolution worsened in deep tribal rivalries, paved the way for the rise of al-Qaeda and ISIL, and resulted in geopolitical battles between countries including Turkey, Russia, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. Libya spiraled into civil war, and for years it's been nearly divided in two. There was an internationally recognized government in the West and a competing government in the East. This year, after long negotiations, the rivals formed an interim unity government, and the elections scheduled for December were supposed to mark a new beginning. But Malik says it's unclear if they'll even go forward, because there's no constitutional framework for the elections. I think there's a lot of pressure from the international community for the elections to be held as scheduled. 
But if elections are scheduled to take place, what kind of elections are we going to see? Are we going to see parliamentary elections? Are we going to see presidential elections? What kind of powers does a president have? And so these are many issues that have yet to be resolved, thus bringing into question whether the uh, vote can take place as scheduled. The political divisions have really caused a lot of harm to regular Libyans. You have people that they don't really care who's in power of Libya. They just want to live their lives. And all of a sudden they're caught in the middle of this power struggle between East and West. And now, you know, they have no homes. They can't provide for their families. It was a very difficult situation for the average Libyan. So do you think all of that instability has made Saif al-Islam more appealing? Is he seen as someone who could unify Libya? Do people harken back to a time where, yes, there was a brutal regime, but there was at least stability? Yeah, I definitely think there's a percentage of Libyans who reminisce about a time when the Gaddafi regime was in power. They believe that, you know, Libya was stable. They can travel freely. They can work and provide for their families. And they'll they'll look back and say, who cares about being able to express yourself when I can't live in, in, in peace and stability? Whether or not Saif al-Islam has a majority of Libyans, I don't think so. I don't think a huge percentage of Libyans would vote for Saif. But definitely there are a, a percentage of Libyans that do think that Saif could move the country forward. If he does end up running for president, it's not exactly like it's obstacle-free for him. I mean, there are some obstacles in his way. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, well, first of all, who can run as president still hasn't been uh, agreed upon by the various sides. Uh, Saif al-Islam is wanted by the International Criminal Court. He's accused of crimes against humanity, murder and persecution. So one of the things that they agreed may be you can't, I mean, like you can't have a president that is wanted by the International Criminal Court. I mean, that's I don't know. I I don't think that's what Libyans want, especially this is supposed to be a new government that's going to have international recognition, bringing in safe Islam into the fold and even allowing his candidacy is, 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 is not likely in this election coming up. I think he's got more hype than substance. Tarek Majerisi from the European Council on Foreign Relations has consulted for Libya's various players on the ground and outside the country for years. He's also less than convinced about a Qaddafi comeback, at least in the short term. I mean, we're about two months away from the elections and he still hasn't shown his face in public. It's kind of hard to become president if you're scared to go out in public. So I'm not sure he'll, he'll really be as big a factor as he's being made out to be. I asked Tarek to explain who he does expect the main candidates to be. Nobody's officially thrown their hat into the ring. So we just have the expected big players. And amongst them, probably a good place to start is with the current prime minister, Abdul Hamid al-Dabeba. Dabeba is in the West, where the UN-recognized government is based. Now, according to the agreement that brought him into power, he wasn't supposed to run in this election. But Tarek says it's looking like he will. He's been kind of indicating that he is going to do that. He's putting forward all these populist policies and handing out cash and doing rallies. So we're pretty certain that he's going to run. Uh, at the opposite end of the country, we have the the field marshal, 
Khalifa Haftar. He's kind of a renegade military officer who, who set up his own army in 2014 and has been trying to conquer Libya ever since. Haftar is in the east and controls a large force that tried to take over Tripoli in 2019. And he failed at that job a couple of years ago. So now he's going to try the same thing, just the democratic way instead. Wherever you have instability, and that would certainly describe Libya, you usually have regional and international proxies at play. So who are the main external actors in this election and who are they likely to back? Yeah, I think uh, Libya's broken all records when it comes to international proxy uh, actors in the country. But, you know, I'll, I'll go down the same way as I, I talked about the candidates. Firstly, we have Turkey. They are the probably the biggest military players in Libya, and they are the ones who stopped Field Marshal Haftar's war. Momentum is with forces loyal to the internationally recognized government in Tripoli whose success has come with the extensive help of Turkey's government as its forces take back control of most of Western Libya. They are backing the current Prime Minister Debeba. They have a great relationship with him. Abdul Hamid Debeba and, and the wider Debeba clan have been doing business with the Turks or, or storing their cash there since the early 90s. So they would like to see their ally now gain the electoral legitimacy that these elections will give and kind of stay on for another two to three years to, to support Turkish business. There are also countries backing Haftar. Tarek says the two most significant are the United Arab Emirates and France. He is ideologically close to Egypt's strongman Abdul Fattah al-Sisi and over the past few years has gained support in the West, including from France. I mean, these are the two who have been backing Haftar since the start. They've given him arms, they've given him political backing. So, yeah, you would expect to see them continue to back him now and perhaps even try to take his side if there's a disputed outcome in these elections. And last in the mix, says Tarek, is Russia. Russia is one of the main players in the war in Libya. The United States Africa Command said there were around 2,000 Russian mercenaries fighting alongside Haftar's men, many of them working for a company called the Wagner Group, which is owned by a close friend of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Russians are kind of the wild card because they're this military counterbalance to Turkey and all the news and all the rumors suggests that they are backing Saif al-Islam. And they've even had electoral teams go out to meet him, to do polling, to do research and plan disinformation campaigns. And some of their staff were even arrested for that in Tripoli. But it doesn't strike me as a, a logical next step for them to back somebody who so clearly looks like he's going to be a losing horse. Now, if the elections don't go forward in December, what kind of power grabs could that potentially set the stage for? I mean, I think chaos is is probably the most likely outcome of what we'll be expecting. But I think that the established players will will be able to best take advantage of that chaos instead of newcomers like Saif al-Islam. But no doubt he will continue to kind of grow his base in the shadows. Increasingly, Tarek says what he's seen is Libya's actors maneuvering for no elections at all. That could easily set the stage for more division and possibly even a return to parallel governments in eastern and western Libya, with the UN still recognizing the western government. The international community will probably figure that, you know, we need to have a government in place and, and Debeba's government is the only one that we've got. And so as they try to figure out how to 
to put that electoral roadmap back on track, the Baber's government will, will probably have to stay on just as a default government. The ones most likely to benefit from all this, says Tarek, are the outside powers. The Russians and the Turks will be quite happy with this chaotic outcome because should these elections fail or should this whole UN roadmap fail, then the credibility of the UN, the credibility of Europeans and the United States and Libya will also take a big hit. And this will bolster the idea that, you know, Turkey and Russia can just work directly with one another. You know, the ironic thing about all of this is that we talk about this outcome being likely if the elections don't happen, but the electoral process is so kind of flimsy. This is probably what we can expect should the elections actually happen as well, whereby all the losers will say that the process is illegitimate and what we've just discussed will come to pass anyway. Back in Libya, Malik sees the same threat ready to unfold. Let's just say the elections do happen, which I think most Libyans hope that they will. I believe there are some statistics on that. Over 80% of Libyans want to see elections happen. The problem is that even if elections are held, who's going to ensure that either party or either side are going to respect the, the results of the elections. So we might see this divide all over again uh, with big possibility that a civil war may, may begin again. I keep going back to that description that you were giving us of being a reporter on the ground 10 years ago and looking at Muammar Gaddafi's body and thinking how small he was and how hopeful people were that there was such a, a bright future for Libya ahead. A decade on from Muammar Gaddafi's death, did you ever imagine that you would be talking about the possibility of one of his sons returning to power in Libya? I, you know, it's, it's, it's so hard thinking about where Libya was and where it is now. It's really depressing. For me personally, I mean, I came in 2011 so hopeful for a democratic country. It was this whole thing about, you know, bringing democracy, bringing freedom to Libya and, and seeing my, my, my fellow countrymen be able to vote for who they want to control them. I mean, that I still remember that. And it's really depressing now seeing the situation here and that we might be going back to a regime that ruled the country with an iron fist. You couldn't say the name Gaddafi without people looking behind their backs and, and worrying that something would happen. So on a personal level, it's very depressing. As a journalist, you, you report what's on the ground and how people feel. I think many people are upset and, and that hope that, you know, that dream that Libya will prosper is, isn't as prevalent as it used to be. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Ruby Zaman, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliai, and me, Patricia Sobga, filling in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed this episode. Tom Fenton is our editor. Aya Elmalek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. <laughs>